This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. Uh, We're working our way through the Gospel of John a little bit at a time, and um, what we're going to cover today really ties into last week in a uh, in a very specific way, and I'll review last week in case you weren't here. I wasn't here, uh, but in case you weren't here, uh, I'll review that really quickly, and then we'll jump in. But before we do so, uh, let's pray, and uh, let's ask for God's help that He would speak to us today, because we're dependent upon Him. Uh, anything that we're going to learn from the Bible that's going to be meaningful, uh, we're going to be dependent upon Him to uh, to teach that to us. So let's pray if we could. God, we thank You that Your Word is God-breathed that it is real, that it is true, and that it is life-changing because it, it reveals you and uh, you change lives. And so we pray that as we open your text this morning, that you would be speaking loudly and clearly. We're, we're a room full of people who are at different places, uh, some, some uh, believing, some not believing, uh, some having a great experience in life right now, and, and some uh, deep in darkness and depression. And, and God, we just pray that wherever folks are today gathered here, that you would address them personally and specifically through the truth of this passage. Fill me with your spirit, I pray, and grant me strength. Uh, and clarity of mind to preach true to d- truthfully today, and I pray that you give us all ears to hear and to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, um, controversy can actually be a good thing. Controversy can be a good thing in the church sometimes, because controversy, um, controversy is used to bring clarity. And that's exactly what's happened in the passage we're going to look at today. There's, there's been some controversy. And what has happened is that controversy has served for Jesus to explain who he is and to make some extraordinary claims about himself in the passage. We're going to look at a lot of verses today uh, in this passage. And, and what has happened at the first part of John 5 is that Jesus has healed a guy, a guy who's lame, he can't walk, and Jesus has healed him on the Sabbath, on a Saturday, and he has told him to pick up his mat and walk. And... The religious folk of the day, the Pharisees, are incensed by this um, because he, Jesus is working. He's causing this guy to pick up his mat on the day he's healing. And uh, so they are rather upset by the whole deal. And to l- review the end of last week real briefly, verse 16, this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Namely, healing. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. So Jesus responds with this provocative statement, My Father, which is unheard of language at this time, My Father is working. So he's basically saying God's working on the Sabbath. Uh, He's not really going to bow to your regulations. He's upholding the universe uh, on Saturday. And uh, so my Father's working, and so am I. And the implication of that is, uh, well, it's just incredible because look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So the people are upset. They want to kill him because Jesus is claiming to be God. 
And they have a lot of man-made regulations about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And uh, Jesus, who is God, isn't bowing to them. We're real good at creating rules, all kinds of rules that aren't in the Bible, all kinds of practices. As Christians, we're masterfully at, at coming up with rules about money, relationships, uh, education, uh, culture. We, we create all kinds of rules, and the lesson here is that God will not bow and will not submit Himself to our inventions of rules, God will uh, hold us accountable to His standard, which is the Word. And the Pharisees had taken His standard, which was the Word about the Sabbath, and had imported all kinds of rules about what you could and could not do, like a lame guy carrying his mat. And so he is just saying, I- I'm not going to obey. So he doesn't argue the fact that he's broken their rules on the Sabbath. He simply says, I'm God. And I'm not going to bow to your rule. And so that's why they're so mad. Listen, sometimes people say that Jesus never claimed to be God. And that's just not true. Jesus is killed because he claims. That's the very reason he is killed. And right now, early in the gospel in chapter 5, they already want to kill him. That's what it says. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was calling himself equal to God. So here's what's going to happen in the verses we're about to read, verses 19 through 46. Jesus is going to claim very clearly that He's God. He's going to bring some evidence, some witnesses to evidence that He's God. And then He's going to make clear that those evidences will be convincing to people who have an open heart. And so we might summarize the, the next verses we're going to read this way, that Jesus is God and He provides witnesses to prove it to those who have an open heart. Jesus is God and He provides witnesses to prove that He is God, to those who have an open heart. It's a lot of verses, so I'm going to break it down into two chunks. So let's read verses 19 through 29 first. We'll look at that, and then we'll look at the next section. This section talks about Jesus the Son as God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Okay, so the first point in this passage is that Jesus is God. Verse 18, we already read that people are upset because he's making himself equal with God. And this whole passage is defining his deity. It's an assertion that he is God. 
Now, the Jews foundationally believe that there's only one God. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so Jesus here is going to define um, how it is that if he claims to be God, he's not another God. How is he not a rival God <clears throat> to God the Father? And he does that by explaining here that while he is equal to God, while he is the same as God the Father in essence, while he is the same as God in his godness, in his nature, that that with regard to his role, he takes a subordinate role just as a son would to a father. And so that's what he's talking about in this passage. He's talking about the subordinate role of the son to the father, even though he is God. He is not acting independently of God. He is not acting independently of God the Father. Look at verse 19. Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So Jesus is fully God and fully man. But the point of this entire passage, if we just look at the context of verse 18, Jesus claiming to be God, the point of the entire passage is to show how He functions as God, though man, and he functions as one who is submitted to the Father, who only does what the Father does, who only does what he sees the Father doing. In other words, he's dependent upon the Father. He's not independent. So one, one, one commentator said this, and I think it's help, helpful to understand. The Father is God sending and commanding. The Son is God sent and obedient. The Father is, the, is God sending and commanding. The Son is God sent and and obedient. In the Gospel of John, the most common description of Jesus is the Son sent from the Father, sent by the Father. And this sent language is all over the passage that we're looking at today. So the Father reveals to the Son what He's doing, verse 20. The Father loves the Son and shows, shows Him all that He's doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. Now, here's where it gets dicey for the Pharisees. Jesus says that he's dependent on the Father, he's sent by the Father, he's God, but he is subordinate in role, doing what the Father sends him to do, only what the Father sends him to do. And now, he's going to make two points. He's going to make two points about what he does that are greater works than they've seen. They've already seen him healing, they've already seen uh, him doing various signs that point to, uh, to God the Father revealing who He is. But now He's going to discuss two things that He will do, Jesus will do, which only God can do. The first one is, the Son will raise the dead. Jesus will raise the dead. That's the first thing He mentions here to prove that He's God. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. So the Son has the prerogative to give life to whomever He wants. That is the prerogative of deity. So that's a statement claiming that He is God, that He, is, uh, he will raise the dead. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus can speak and impart spiritual life to dead souls. Only God does that. Only God does that. But Jesus, even now, he says, can speak and life comes. So he's defining that, that he is God, that God has given him the power to raise the dead. Look at verse 28. Do not marvel at this, 
For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. He's speaking of the Son of Man there, if you look at the verse ahead. So Jesus not only gives life now, but there's coming a day when Jesus will speak and all of the dead will be resurrected. I mean, this is way beyond healing on the Sabbath. This is an overt claim, an extraordinary claim, that Jesus will have the power and the authority as the Son sent from the Father to call people from the dead. And only God does that. And when He calls them from the dead, He will judge them. That's the second thing He talks about here that demonstrates He's God. The Son will judge everyone. Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Look at verse 27. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. That's Jesus. Look at verse 29 again. You know, He says He will call them from the tombs. They will hear His voice. Verse 29, everyone will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Here's what Jesus is saying. Now, we're so familiar with this. But if you're standing there, you're one of the Pharisees, our God is one, and you've got a guy in front of you who's clearly human, clearly human, and he is saying that on the last day, he will call everyone out of their tomb. And not only that, but he will, he will raise those who know Christ, who've trusted him, and ultimately that's been evidenced by a life of good, that they will, they will enter into his eternal blessing. And that those who have not, who have done evil, they will enter into eternal judgment. That He will judge that the eternal destinies of everyone who has ever lived, who's ever lived, will rest with Jesus. This is a shocking claim that He makes. You know, it's, it's really easy for us, and it's really common in our culture to, um, to sort of create our own view about Jesus. And, Oftentimes, to sort of select character qualities that we like. I mean, Jesus is a fairly popular figure in culture. Um, He's enjoyed something of a resurgence in the last decade or so. And there's things about Jesus' character that are esteemed and appreciated uh, by our culture. I mean, Jesus is loving. He doesn't love a loving person. He's loving. He's compassionate. Jesus very clearly has a heart for the marginalized. Jesus has a heart for the poor, for the outsider. Jesus has a heart for the sinner, the person who's outside the cultural norm by virtue of their sin, like a tax collector, a prostitute. Jesus loves these people, and so we can celebrate this as a culture. And people in our culture also celebrate the fact that he does. he seems to be harshest on fundamentalists. I mean, it's the religious people. It's the Pharisees that Jesus is the strongest on. So that's celebrated in our culture. Jesus who's loving. Uh, Jesus who is, has a heart for the poor. Jesus who doesn't judge. There's this, there's this idea that in the Old Testament, God the Father is this sort of angry being that's just like judging and killing people. And then Jesus comes and He's compassionate. And he's kind. And so we, we see these things and people like that. I mean, it's even common sometimes to say, hear people say something like this, I, I, like, I have no problem with Jesus. I like Jesus. It's the church I can't stand. 
And that's somewhat understandable because God's people aren't nearly as beautiful as He is. God's people aren't nearly as holy, not yet, as He is. We will be, but not yet. God's people don't always represent Jesus really well. So understand that sentiment that would say, hey, I'm okay with Jesus, I don't like His people. The problem is that the Jesus we're frequently okay with is a selective Jesus. And and in this passage, Jesus says, the Father doesn't judge anyone, I execute judgment. The idea that Jesus doesn't judge and God the Father, it's just the opposite is what this text says. That's Jesus' claim about himself. I will call people forward. So yes, Jesus is compassionate. Yes, Jesus has a heart for the marginalized, the poor, the outsider. But also, yes, Jesus is holy. And yes, Jesus will judge. And everyone will give an account to God, to Jesus, for themselves. He is claiming to be God who will raise people and judge people. And we don't have the freedom to define Jesus as we choose to define Him because He doesn't allow us that freedom because He claims to be God. There's a very commonly uh, quoted statement by C.S. Lewis that I want to refer to this morning. and it, he's, he's referring to these types of statements when Jesus claims to be God. And, and, and this is what he says. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words, like we're reading this morning, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and a conceit unrivaled by any character in history. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, which is what he's claiming, or else he's a madman, or something worse. You you can shut him up for a fool, You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, which is exactly what the religious people, the Pharisees do. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to him with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that option to us. He did not intend to. He doesn't give us the option to say he's just a good guy. He's a great philosopher, wonderful teacher, compassionate martyr, humanitarian. He claims he's God. And that's either true, which has profound implications for us, or he's lying. He's deceitful, he's manipulative, he's evil, or he's lying and he doesn't know he's lying. He's batty. I mean, there are institutions where you can find people who claim to be God. There there are places, there are people who are mentally ill who claim this. So he could be mentally ill, he could be an evil deceiver, or he could be who he says he is. He, He doesn't leave us the option because of these kinds of claims to paint him as who we want him to be. He explains himself. He'll do things that only God can do. He acts with the authority of God. He tells us who he is, and he prescribes how we are to respond to him. Verse 23. That He has all judgment that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. See, he's saying the same honor you would give God the Father, you must give me. Jesus is requiring worship. He's requiring that we worship him as God, and that is why he's in such trouble with the religious leaders, because he is requiring that we worship him. See, the reality is that one day everyone will acknowledge him. 
there's coming a day where everyone will see him as he is and will stand before him. There's coming a day where every person will give an account of their life to Christ. And Jesus is loving the religious leaders here. And He's loving us through the Scripture by preparing us for that day. I mean, we can think it's so loving that Jesus loves the poor. It's so loving that Jesus healed a man who could not walk. And yes, that is loving. Healing a man who could not walk is a loving thing to do. But comparatively, it's not nearly as loving as preparing us for the day when we will meet Him face to face and be judged for our eternal destiny. A physical healing is a temporary love, but preparation for eternity is an eternal love. When Jesus tells us that He's the judge, when Jesus tells us that He's God, when Jesus tells us He will divide those who know and don't know Him, when Jesus tells us He will judge sinners for their sin, this is eminently loving because He's telling the truth and preparing us. So He is loving in a tremendous way here. He claims to be God and as God is preparing all for the day we will meet Him. So first of all, Jesus claims to be God. The second thing He does is He provides us with witnesses that are convincing for the heart that is soft for the heart that is open. Look at what he says beginning in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John... And he, that's, he's referring to John the Baptist. You sent to John, and he w- has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, that's love. I'm telling you this so that you'll be saved. That's love. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in My Father's name, and you do not receive Me. If another comes in his own name, well, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God, from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So here Jesus is going to sort of parade out some witnesses 
that demonstrate he's God. The first witness he mentions, well, first of all, he says my witness, but it's, 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 it would be sufficient, but he's not going to rely on his witness alone. It would be sufficient for Jesus to say he's God. But he says, you know, you wouldn't deem that true out of the mouth of two or three witnesses as kind of the ground rules for establishing truth, that there'd be more than one witness. And so he says, I'm going to, ask, in essence, call witnesses. <clears throat> and the first witness is John the Baptist. Look at verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness of the truth. Verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. He goes back to chapter 1, and he says, do you remember John the Baptist? You guys were flocking to John the Baptist. Everybody is going out to see John the Baptist. He's a crazy kind of prophet guy. He's powerfully preaching the Word of God. He's baptizing people. He's this wonder to behold, and everybody's going out to see him. And do you know what he says? He points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In, in chapter 1, verse 34, John the Baptist says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus just says, Go back to John the Baptist. You guys were all excited about him. He was all the rage. Everybody was John the Baptist, John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist teach? That I'm God. That's what he said. John the Baptist said he wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' sandal. So glorious is Jesus the Savior that John the Baptist couldn't even deserve to bow down and untie his sandal. That's how he viewed Jesus. So he mentions that and says, John the Baptist said that I was the promised Messiah. Secondly, he gives another testimony. Look at verse 36. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. As he said, okay, everybody, we're, we're, we're here having a squabble over the fact that I healed, healed a guy. Guy could not walk for all these years. I speak and he walks and everybody's worried about what day was it? And what did he say? Was it carry the mat or do a healing? Can he do that? No. What? Everybody's worried about this. There was a guy that cannot walk and now he's walking. Only God has that kind of power. Look at the works. He, 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 chapter 2, he turns water into wine. He's at the feast of Passover and we don't even know what all he did, but it just said many works he did there and people saw all, saw all these miracles he were doing which pointed to him as the Messiah. So he's saying, I don't just have to rely on John's message. Just look at my life and what I'm doing. I'm doing things that only God can do. That's the second witness. Thirdly, he brings the witness of the Scripture. The witness of the Scripture. Look at verse 39. There's so many verses here. We're not going to, Normally we break down each verse and kind of walk through it. I don't have the time to, to do that. So I'm, I know I'm kind of jumping here. So I'm just pulling out the highlights. It's first John the Baptist is a witness. Second, Jesus works as a witness. Third, the Scriptures. Verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. These guys, uh, the Pharisees, had mastered the Old Testament. That was their Bible, was the Old what we would call the Old Testament. That was their Bible. He said, you study the Bible thinking you're going to find eternal life. Your whole Bible talks about me. Uh, the Bible reveals me. He, he goes to Moses. Look at this statement, verse 40, um, 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. 
Moses, the great prophet that brings the law of God to the people, writes the first five books of the Bible. He said, just, you guys, I mean, these guys are experts in the scripture. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, these guys have forgotten more about the Bible than anyone in this room will ever know in terms of just the facts of the scripture. These guys are experts. He's saying, you know Moses. And you know what? Moses points his finger and says, you're guilty because Moses writes about me. Starting back at the beginning of Genesis, when he promises there will be one, the Redeemer who will crush the head of the serpent, he starts talking about Jesus back in chapter 3 of Genesis, and there's pictures of Jesus throughout in the temple, in the sacrificial system. There's this pointing to the Savior who will come, Jesus himself. He says, the Bible reveals this, you just don't see it. See, these these folks should be able to see God's hand through Jesus' hand of healing. These people should be able to hear God's voice through the voice of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, through the voice of John the Baptist, through the voice of Jesus. They should be able to hear the voice of God. They should be able to see the hand of God, but they don't. Why? Because of their hearts. Because their hearts are hard. Jesus is God. He provides witnesses to prove it, but only to those who have an open heart. Point one, Jesus is God. Point two, Jesus provides witnesses. Point three, the hard heart. It is the closed heart that is the problem. They have knowledge. but They have a problem with their heart. Look at verse 40. You refuse to come to me, that you may have life. Verse 42, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Do you see what the problem is? It's It's not an absence of information. It's that they refuse to come to Jesus. The problem is not an absence of information. It it is that they don't have the love of God. They don't love God. The issue is not an absence of information. It's that they prefer the glory of others. They want respect to their peers. They want props from everyone. They want everyone to think they're great and love them. They want tons of... Facebook friends and Twitter followers, and they want everybody at, at, at work and in the neighborhood to think highly of them. They want the glory of people, not the glory of God. You know what we often do as Christians? When, when we encounter unbelief, when we're talking to someone and trying to introduce them to the truth of Jesus, when we encounter unbelief, what we typically do is begin to marshal more information. Well, if they don't believe, the problem is more information. And so what they need is some proofs. So I'm going to bring out science, because that'll prove it. Or I'm going to to bring out these arguments to show the the fallacies of their logic. Or I'm just going to give them more information, and they're just with an information overload. If I just keep giving information, at some point, they're certainly going to be convinced. And there is a place 
Obviously, for apologetic arguments, there is a place. There's absolutely, there's not only a place, it's required that we explain the truth of the Scripture. You must have information to become a Christian. You must know that God is holy. You must know that the Bible says that we are all sinful, and so we are in serious trouble with God because we have rebelled against Him. And you must know that God has graciously sent Jesus who is fully God and fully man, to give His life, to die on a cross in our place, to take our sins upon Himself. You must know that He's the Savior. You must know how you, the Bible says you're to respond to Him. You must know that you must turn to Him in faith and believe that He's your only hope. He's the only source of forgiveness for your sins. He's the only one that can make you right with God the Father through His death and resurrection. You must know that it's required that you turn from your sin and turn to Him and believe. So we must communicate that information. And there are sincere seekers that ask other questions and they're troubled in their conscience with, because of intellectually confusing things to them. And we must try to answer. Not every question will be answered. If you are not God, you will not understand everything that happens in the universe. There's a difference between creator and created. And one of it is one has vast knowledge endless, limitless, all knowledge, and one doesn't. So not every question can be answered, but many can be answered. And so we must be patient and provide answers. But having provided answers and having explained the gospel, the primary problem here is the heart. It's the heart. That is the problem. The Scripture says we all have a revelation of God, but we suppress that. We suppress that revelation. These, part, these people are religious experts and they have, they have all the knowledge, but they have hard hearts. They lack the love of God. They refuse Jesus and they crave the glory of others. If, if you're not a follower of Christ and you're here today, um, I, I want to say we're really glad that you are here, first of all. And so that I'm not misunderstood, I'm not painting a picture here that's us and them. That's the Christians and all those other people that don't believe. The Bible teaches there's one class of people. Us. That's it. If you're living and breathing, you're part of us. There is not an us and them. Because the Bible teaches that no one... Here, the Pharisees, you refuse Jesus. The Bible teaches that no one pursues Jesus on their own. Romans 3 says, no one seeks God, not one seeks God. The Bible says that no one is pursuing Jesus. The Bible says that no one left to themselves love God, just like the Pharisees here. We, by by nature, love ourselves. By nature, we don't pursue Jesus because Jesus is the authority. Jesus is the authority that says to us, I will to follow me is to have me ruling your life now he's a gracious ruler he's a loving ruler he's a merciful ruler he's a compassionate ruler he loves us indescribably but he is a ruler and to come to christ means that i bow my knee and say uh i will no longer refuse you as ruler i will receive and embrace you as ruler and by nature every person says i will rule it starts out early. Any, go, if you doubt this, then next week we will put you in the two-year-old class where you can serve and let everybody know snack time's over and see who wants to rule. Is everybody loving God or is everybody, eh, 
It's the latter. So at a very young age, we all are refusing the rule of Jesus. We all are not loving God, but we are loving ourselves. And we all are desiring the glory of others, the respect, the love, the admiration of others above the love of God. That's all of us in this room. That's all of us. By nature, we refuse Him. God must open our eyes. God must soften our hearts. In John 3, He told Nicodemus, the religious leader, unless you have a new birth in your heart, you can't even see what I'm talking about. You can't even see the kingdom of God if God doesn't open your eyes. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Christ, again, thank you for being here. And I don't know how you got here. I don't know if somebody grabbed you by the earlobe and yanked you into this meeting. If that's the case, well, thank you. Thanks for getting yanked. I hope you'll get yanked and come back. Uh, But if you're here with a shred of interest, a shred of curiosity, if your heart, as we're talking about these things, in some way is stirring towards God, this is God at work and this is a wonderful thing. Because God opens eyes. God softens hearts. God changes refusers of Jesus to welcomers of Jesus, followers of Jesus. God changes those who don't love God to those who do love God. And God changes those who crave the approval of others to those who will say, I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to stand before God, and that's all I care about is what you think. God does that. Listen, if you're here and you're wondering about Christ, then I want to encourage you. You may be saying, God, you know, I, I, I can't figure this thing out. Help it to make sense to me. That's a good prayer. Keep praying that, but I want to give you another prayer. Pray this prayer. God, would you change my heart? Would you soften my heart so that I don't refuse you? Would you give me a love for you? Would you make your glory the most important thing to me rather than my glory? Pray for, because Jesus says this is the issue. So pray for information and come back. We'll give you all the information that we can. We're glad to help you. But realize that the, the ultimate resistance, the ultimate problem generally is an ignorance. It's a refusal. It's a refusal to bow our knee to the God who loves us. He's a glorious Savior. Pray that He would open your heart. Now, what if you are a Christian and you're here and you're saying, you know what, I don't really know what this passage has to do with me. I'm already convinced. You've been talking, I'm to the end of the sermon, and you've been talking all about Jesus as God. I've been convinced of that for years. I mean, this material, Jesus as God. Okay, that is like Sunday School 101. This is a yawner. I know that. Well, if this truth, this sermon may be a yawner, but if this truth is a yawner, that's a problem. Because this is a glorious, glorious truth. That Jesus is God. That Jesus rules. That Jesus will judge. And you say, I'm a Christian, I believe all that. If you are a Christian, you do believe all that in your creed. You believe all that. If you're a Christian, you do believe everything I've said today about the nature of Jesus intellectually. But there is a world of difference between believing John 1, Jesus is the Creator that begins it all. John 5, Jesus is the judge who will call everybody forth and judge everyone. Yes, I believe Jesus began it all. Yes, I believe Jesus will end it all. Very different to believe that and believe that Jesus will meet my financial needs this month. The point of the Bible is that He's not just God over the beginning and God over the end. He's God all the way through. 
He's God of everything in our life. And sometimes we pass so quickly over the Jesus is God type portions, thinking, well, that must just be an explanation for someone that doesn't know God. No, that is not just an explanation for someone that doesn't know God. That is truth to root those who do know God in a trust and a confidence in God today. He is God. And we want to transfer a sort of intellectual belief in Jesus as God to a functional belief that Jesus is God so that we face the challenges of our lives in faith. Jesus is God, and as God, He is with you and will sustain you, and we pray He will change the circumstances uh, that you find yourself in if you're in a dark place, if you're depressed and lonely today. God is with you in Christ. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is Jesus who is God with us. He's going to give you strength. See, it's a lot easier to say, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the God that will call me out of a grave. That's easier than I believe that Jesus is God and will sustain my marriage, which frankly is on a few threads, or its last thread. The the argument here when we look at these type of passages is the greater to the lesser. The greater is that Jesus creates, Jesus redeems, He comes and gives His life for our sins, dies on the cross, is buried, is resurrected, ascends to the right hand of God. He will return for us, or He will call us out of the grave if we've already died. He will give us a spiritual body. We will be in His presence in the new heavens and a new earth, and that for eternity. That's the greater thing. The lesser thing is, can be what we're facing right now. It can be a relational struggle. It can be an uncertain job. It can be a health concern. Um, It it can be an unfulfilled dream or desire or hope. I'm not saying those are small things when I say lesser. I'm just saying in comparison to creating the whole universe and dying for sins and ushering believers into heaven, I'm just saying compared to those big things, it's relatively small. In comparison. And Jesus who is God over the big stuff is Jesus who is God over the stuff that affects you today. God over the stuff that you're living with right now. He's glorious. He's powerful. He, he can free. He can free us from the habitual sin that enslaves us. The sin that you committed last night and last week and have been battling for weeks or months. Jesus as God comes to break the power of that and has authority over that area. He can provide what you need. He can change your heart so that you say, so so that you begin to have different affection for God, different desires for God. God can change our hearts. God can enable us to persevere through the financial crisis or whatever it is that you are facing today. As Creator, Jesus begins it all. As final judge, He ends it all. And He is God overall of everything in between. He begins it all, John 1. He'll end it all, John 5. And He is overall everything in between. And, and I know that I, sometimes the Jesus is God passages, we can read that and say, okay, can you just give me something that works? I just need something 
that really, really works. That just sounds like out there and philosophical. This really, really works. I'm not saying that that answers. I'm not saying just the affirmation, Jesus is God, Jesus is Savior. I'm not saying just making that affirmation solves all your problems. I am not saying that. But I'm saying apart from that as a starting place, you have no hope. If you, we don't start there, and this is the biggest part, it's not everything. There's ongoing wisdom, there's counsel, there's community, there's sometimes counseling, there is, uh, there are, there is help that we need of a practical nature, there's support, encouragement, accountability. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into bringing life change. But you can have all that, and if you don't have this, you've got nothing. This is, what we, this is where we must start, and this is where we must live. That Jesus is God. That, that G, this is not just a historical figure. This isn't just some wise teaching. This isn't just like the most enduring self-help manual that's out there. This is the Word of God. This is Jesus who says that He will raise the dead. He will judge all. It's proven in the Scripture. He will give eternal life. It's proven by these other witnesses. We'll just soften our hearts and trust Him. We'll just ask and God conform our hearts to loving Him. We'll just desire His glory and what's pleasing to Him rather than what's pleasing to us. It's that kind of a, that kind of a heart. May God soften our hearts and strengthen our faith to see Him as He is. Listen, He's greater than any of us know in this room. He's greater, greater, greater than any of us know. We will know one day when we see Him face to face how loving of Him to tell us what's ahead and to die for us that we might know Him and to meet us where we are today. Let's pray. God, we, we're humbled. God, I, I'm just humbled by the fact that it's so easy to read a passage like this and just skim over it because we think we know it. And while we intellectually know it, Lord, we frequently don't know these truths in our heart very deeply. For if we did, we wouldn't be characterized by the anxiety and the fear that rules our lives if we really knew these things. And I pray that you'd penetrate our heart with these things. Lord, I pray for two groups of people this morning. I pray for those that don't know you. I pray for the church kid that's sitting in the room right now that's heard all this since their crib and knows this intellectually, I pray that you would burst through into their hearts, that you would soften hearts, God, that you would take the heart that resists you and make it the heart that melts before you, that you would take the heart that does not love you and cause it to love you, that you would take the heart that loves glory from others and make it love glory from you. God, I pray that you would hold out your mercy and your compassion to that churched person, Lord, that church person who is close physically to the people of God, but infinitely far from God Himself. God, for the, for the guest here that does not know You, I pray You'd just show mercy. I pray that nothing I said would have, would have misrepresented You. I, I pray that You'd just save them, God. Give them a new life. And for everyone in the room who is convinced, God, just freshly root our conviction and our convincing in You, I pray. God, I ask You to do this in the name of Jesus, that You'd grant hope to the hopeless, that, that You'd free the enslaved in this room, that You'd bring light to those who are in the darkness of depression, 
that you'd bring hope to those who are facing hopelessness, the Christians that are facing that. Lord, we face this at times. Lord, for the confused person, I pray that you'd bring the clarity of who you are. God, for the angry person, I pray that you'd grant repentance and a gratitude to replace a demanding spirit. God, do a work, renew us and revive us, I pray. And the fact that Jesus is God make a greater difference in our life and in our church, Lord, in our city. You are Lord. May that make a difference, we pray, Lord. May that make a difference, O oh God. Thank you for your mercy to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.